Okay. Good morning, everybody. Hymn 954. 954, just the first stanza, plus the Amen at the end. 954. I'll wait. Yeah, you know, by this time, uh, but, uh, well... Okay, 954. We all believe in one true God who created earth and heaven, the Father who to us in love as the right of children given. He in soul and body feeds us, all we need his hand provides us, through all snares and perils leads us, watching that no harm betide us. He cares for us by day and night. All things are governed by his mind. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, keep your church with your perpetual mercy, and because of our frailty we cannot but fall. Keep us ever by your help from all things hurtful, and lead us to all things profitable to our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, Romans 10.13 is the verse of the week. Let's speak that together. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes, okay. For a little bit of context here, we're going to first need to worry about defining whoever. Because the, what this is not saying is Anybody who wants to, at any time, whenever they feel like it, can just say, Oh, Lord, I invite you to be my personal Savior, and then magically something happens. That is not what this is saying, uh, especially in its place in the entire chapter of Romans 10. So what does it mean, then? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Who is the whoever? Yes, exactly, believers. I mean, the good question is, who is going to call on the name of the Lord? Well, the believers. The other thing is this. Who has been given the name of the Lord to call upon? Believers, okay? 
So this is an address to you. Know this, dear Christians, that whoever among you calls upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Now, the name of the Lord is important. It's too bad that Marla is not here because she's the one that keeps asking about capitalizing the pronouns. And uh, this is a really good example of an editor's decision to capitalize or not to capitalize. In this case, I probably would capitalize the N for name because there's a very specific thing that is being referenced here. It's not just whoever calls upon Greg or whoever calls upon George or whoever calls upon Daryl will be saved. It's not name as in what I am called, but name as in the fullness of who I am. That's why the name of God is such an important thing, that baptism gives you the name of God. It's a big deal that the name is branded into your flesh by holy water and word, uh, because it's the fullness of the Trinity. Wherever the name of God is, there the Trinity is. Why do you think we have the invocation so often? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You invoke the name of God so that you have the uh, presence of God right there, and that you recognize that his presence is there. So the name of the Lord. And uh, of course, Whoever receives, whoever believes the name will call. Whoever has the name of the Lord will call. And there's a really easy, there's more than one answer to my next question here, but there's one really, really simple, easy answer. Why is that? Whoever calls, or whoever has the name, calls upon it. Why? Because there's promise attached to the name. It's the easiest answer in the world. Why do you call upon the Lord? Because there's a promise. Because he's told you to do it. He's told you to call upon me. Why? You shall be saved. And all of these good things I want to give you. I want to take care of you. Catechism from last week. The introduction of the Lord's Prayer. With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that we are his true children and that he is our dear father. Why? So that with all boldness and confidence, we ask him. I, yeah, call upon him. Okay? That's, that's the purpose. He wants you to know that you have a relationship here so that you call upon him because you will have a privilege as being one who bears the name. So you call. Yeah, that's the, so, you know, we don't have time to do this today, but names in the Bible matter. Don't, uh, the names are important. Things like that, why is a title given? Why is a name given? Why is somebody called what they are called? Because the name is a little mini sermon. The name preaches to you a, a reality, especially as it pertains to Jesus, that his name, the Lord is salvation, Emmanuel, God with us, everything preaches so even when you're tempted to read through the New Testament and skip all the boring genealogies, don't do it. It's all there for a reason. Uh, so anyway, let's speak this again. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes, yes. Okay, what is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself. But we pray in this petition 
that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we, as the children of God, also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this, Heavenly Father. Now, okay, you already know, there's no secrets here. This is the Lord's Prayer first petition. But the question then is, if you had to think of something like, I don't know, the Ten Commandments, and you had to say, well, how does this petition of the Lord's Prayer and the verse that Pastor selected to go along with it for the week tie in to the Ten Commandments? What do you think the answer would be? Where does it all fit together? Thematically. Okay, yes, the first table. And where specifically in the first table? Which of those three commandments? You've got a 33.33% chance of getting it right. <laughs> it, yes, exactly, the second commandment. Why? Because it's all about the name of God. What the name of God is, why the name of God is given, how to use the name of God, and how not to use the name of God. Okay? Don't ever think that the Lord's Prayer exists all on its own on a little island. The Lord's Prayer, the Creed, the Ten Commandments, all of this ties together. Nothing tells you anything new or fancy. It all tells you the same thing. Okay? So, hallowed be thy name. Make holy or let your name be holy. And of course, this is a good point. God's name is certainly holy in itself. Listen, folks, you're not going to be the ones that are going to make God holy. He's not holy because of you or anything that you do. And if you think that, well, my pastoral advice to you in all love and charity is get over yourself. Uh, because the Lord is holy on his own. And in fact, it's the opposite. You're not praying that the Lord would be holy or that you would do something to make him holy. You're praying that you, his holiness would be preserved among you, that you would not be the ones to profane or attempt to degrade the Lord. <clears throat> Um, any attempts of which obviously would fail because it is apart from you. Now, the other thing is that you pray in this petition have, you know, with the words that, that well, let's this, let this holy name uh, remain holy among us. You're praying for a, a specific spiritual reality. It isn't something that is remote or something that is nebulous or ephemeral out there, no no grounding. It's something very deeply personal and real for you. Let it be holy among me, among my people, among this congregation, among the whole church on earth. And of course, how is it kept holy? When the Word of God is taught, and you can actually even in here put in parentheses when it's preached. Teaching and preaching always go hand in hand. In the New Testament, pastors are called teachers and preachers. But when you look at something like the table of duties, it says teachers and preachers. Well, it doesn't say now pastors and also the public school people whose job it is to teach mathematics. Preachers and teachers, are it's, it's the same thing, two, two sides of the same coin. 
one title, really, with two words, okay? So when the Word of God is taught or preached uh, as it is intended, this is the other thing, it causes you to live holy lives. So there's a natural reflection and a natural, natural birth of Christian living from the Word that is preached and taught, and where the sacraments are administered, this all flourishes. Um, there's a... Uh, well, never mind, we don't need to go there. Um, and then, of course, this is prayer. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. We don't want to profane the name of God either, so protect us from this. We want it to be hallowed. We want it to be holy and holy among us in all of what that means for us and our Christian lives. We do not wish to misuse the name that you have given us, but always to hold it, cherish it, and use it according to your command, that we would call upon it and receive life from it. Okay, questions? Very good. Okay, off to Sunday school then. Yes. Yeah, in the old baptismal records, they would include the names of the sponsors as well. Yeah, being a sponsor is not something to be taken lightly. It's kind of a fad now uh, to, to be the godparent or to be the sponsor. And uh, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an honor in the sense that I didn't realize we were as good of friends as we were, that you wanted me to have this kind of a relationship with your child, but that's about where the line is drawn and where it ends. But it really is something a lot more than that. In fact, if you understand the role of sponsor rightly and the history behind it, it, it begins back in the early church, really, uh, especially during times of persecution, when the church was forced underground. Uh, they, Christians didn't stop being Christians, and the church didn't stop being the church. Uh, however, they also didn't flaunt it in front of Caesar's nose. That's just dumb. So the church went underground, and uh, there were still baptisms, there were still converts to Christianity, but to get in, you needed a sponsor. You needed somebody to vet for you. You needed somebody to stand up before the congregation, excuse me, and say, don't worry, he's with me, he's not going to rat you out. And then the two of you are together because you don't want somebody coming into the church just as a spy to find where they're worshiping and then tell all the authorities so that they can send the soldiers to kill you all. So there was a sponsorship there. But then sponsorship also goes along with catechesis so that through the Christian life and through your Christian catechesis, especially uh, during the early days of the church, for the new converts the catechumens, uh, even pre-baptism, they would, they would go through about three years of classes before they would be baptized. And uh, you'd have a sponsor that would work with you, that would come to learn with you, that would sit with you, that would help you to understand, hey, do you have any questions about the sermon that you heard, about what happened in this class, about what was talked about, about the Christian life? I'm here to help you with that. So the sponsor also fulfilled a special role within the catechetical life of the Christian. And nowadays, at least, well, not now and not yet, the sponsor doesn't 
have to be the person to stand up and say, don't worry, they're not going to rat you out. But they are very, very important in the role of catechesis. So that, uh, you know, obviously the church doesn't see children for more than one, maybe two, well, let's say two, maybe three hours. If you count Sunday school and then the liturgy. Though both of those are going to teach. And then if they come to something like midweek, then you get another hour. But that's three hours out of the whole week. In the grand scheme of things, that's really kind of the lowest percentage of time spent anywhere throughout your entire week. So the job of the church is to preach and teach and administer the sacraments and raise you in the Christian life. Yes, that's all fine and dandy. We do the very best that we can, but, but it also has to be understood that the moment you walk out those doors, it doesn't end that there is responsibility on the side of parents uh, to, to maintain a strong Christian household to teach their children the faith within the home. And then when the parents are perhaps shirking those specific duties, the job of the sponsor is to continue checking in and saying, hey, are you raising them in the faith? And if not, say, well, then I'm going to be the one to step in here and take up the slack because that's what my job is. You know, really pay attention the next time we have a baptism, which is hopefully going to be really soon. Who knows? Uh, but I always like to hope that there's not a lot of time between baptisms because that's a nice thing. Uh, but next time there's a baptism, just listen to the, to the liturgy. Uh, listen to, the, to the, the text of the rite, especially at the enrollment of sponsors. All of the things that sponsors are supposed to do. My goodness, it's a really big, important job. Uh, not just some, not just some uh, societal role or some kind of a parental right. You know, have you ever seen the movie The Godfather? Okay? There's a really, really great scene in that movie where Michael Corleone takes over daddy's business and kills everybody who was in the way. And while every, all of his hitmen are out taking care of the business that he told them to, he is at his nephew's baptism because he is the sponsor. He is the godparent. And as he's being enrolled as the godfather, all of his enemies are getting killed at his order. And it's beautiful cinematography just to watch. But theologically, there's a point there to be made, kind of a what not to do situation, okay? Uh, firstly, you know, don't go out and have a hitman kill your enemies. Uh, secondly, though, when you are the sponsor of a child, you have to be somebody who models uh, the Christian life. You have to live the Christian life even more so than perhaps you would have wanted to at the beginning because now, whether you realize it or not, there are little eyes that are watching you and the kids are going to learn from watching you. Kids don't do a lot of things very well, but one of the things they do very well is watch, listen, and imitate. And if you are not behaving like a Christian, they will watch, they will listen, and they will imitate how you are. And 10 years after the fact, it'll be a lot harder to raise little Christians when the foundation has already been laid to live like little pagans. Uh, so again, the role of sponsor is a very, very important thing in the life of the Christian child and also the, the parents because the sponsor helps the parents or is supposed to check in with the parents uh, about the spiritual well-being of the child, make sure the parents themselves are living as good role models. And the church will do that too, you know. Pastor will maybe give you a call if it's very evident that things are not going the way that they ought after a baptism. But the church 
the church can only do so much. You know, even part of that rite is, may the, Lord, uh, may the Lord permit you to fulfill this duty which we are unable to fulfill. The church flat out comes out and confesses, all of the things that are going to need to happen with this child, we, we just can't do it all. Uh, so there is a responsibility that's kind of delegated through the Christian life. Yeah, okay. Any, yes? Oh, I heard that, and that's... Well, I've got several things to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, very good. So we're going to sort of... It's been like probably a month and a half since we actually talked about what I've had here right on the podium to talk about. Uh, we're getting back to this definition of faith and what it is. And if you remember, we're talking about faith and defining it and chatting about it because of its relation to confirmation. Because I'm debunking all of the myths about confirmation, what it is, what it is supposed to be, what it is for, uh, and how it relates to the church. We didn't get very far in that because we started talking about faith. But this is a really important thing because you can't understand confirmation unless you understand faith. And, and let's be real. Uh, it's really hard to be a, a Christian if you don't actually understand what faith is. So let me take a drink. Okay, and um, let me review because it's been so long. There are, I have four characteristics of faith that I have defined and worked on. I'm sure that there are more, but these are sort of big umbrella categories. The first one is that faith is passive. And remember, uh, the first time that people hear faith is passive, and I, I find this a lot, if you tell somebody that faith is passive, they get angry with you or they get belligerent because, well, no, it's not passive. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, because when you hear the word passive, you think of a big fat slug that does nothing. Well, my faith isn't like that. Well, I rejoice with you that your faith is not a big fat slug that does nothing, but that's not what it means to be passive. Again, what it means for your faith to be passive uh, is that somebody else is working on your faith, that your faith is receiving the works of another person. Think about the third article of the Creed. In the Cliff Notes version, what it says is, I believe that I cannot believe. And that's really your confession. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's how strong your faith is, so strong that the only thing it can do is confess how weak it is. Okay? You're sort of like Socrates. Good Christians are sort of like Socrates. You're really smart and very wise because you're the ones who know what you don't know. You, you know what it is you're incapable of doing. And, and that is part of what Christian humility is, recognizing the self for what he truly is not really all that great, apart from the work that God performs on you. So baptism is something that is received, it's not something that you do, which is why I don't care about you accepting Jesus, because Jesus has already accepted you. Uh, you don't, uh, it's also why I don't care about immersion versus sprinkling. If you want to go down to the lake and have a baptism, give me a call, because I'll do it, unless you've already been baptized, in which case don't call me to do that, because I'll give you a lecture. But if you haven't been baptized and you want to go down to the lake, I'll go down to the lake. I'll baptize you in the lake if you really want to. And if you want to be here at the font and have me splash water on you, I'll splash water on you. And if it's an emergency and I have nothing but a little eyedropper with just one drop of water left in it and I use that one drop of water, it's still a baptism and I'll still do it because there's water. It doesn't matter. 
because it isn't you that's doing it and it's not the water that's working some kind of magic spell, you know. Ooh, boil, boil, toil, trouble, come to the baptismal font, ooh. It's, uh, it's something else, okay? So faith is passive, it's going to receive, and faith always agrees. And the word of agreement for the Christian is? Amen. amen. So and that's why anytime you have the opportunity to say amen, say it like you mean it. And there are all these times during the liturgy where you have the opportunity to say amen, and that's really good, because it doesn't, it, it, it says a lot more than you think. The, the temptation is always to look at amen and go, well, that's the way that I tell Jesus I'm done praying. So it doesn't really do anything other than say, all done. Uh, but it does way more than that. Like, here's the example, right? The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. Okay? Yes, because, now what are you saying? I'm saying the peace of the Lord be with you always, and you say amen, which doesn't just mean, okay, fine, I agree. Your, your amen says, yes, this really is the peace of the Lord that is going to be with me in this thing that's being held up, which I believe wholly and firmly is the true body and the true blood of Christ. That's what your amen says there. You know, you, the, the congregation has a lot of parts to play in the liturgy. People sometimes in the Lutheran church get a little bit uh, upset because they say, well, if I go down to, to the church over there, this is me pointing generally. I'm not saying anything about any churches in town. If I go to the church over there, they have a sign-up sheet, and I can sign up to go, to go read or to go say parts of the liturgy or to go do this and this and that. How come we don't get to do that? How come pastor does it all? Well, and my answer is, if you think that you don't have a part to play, then we need to sit down and look at what the liturgy really is and what your role in it is, because you do have a part to play. It's like you, you being in the high school play, and you've got a good role, and you're on stage for a good amount of time, you're going to make your parents really proud with how you're, you're no tree, all right? You're no shrub. You're, you're, a, you're a named character, and you've got lines. Then do you say, well, gee, why can't I do this and be the main character all at the same time? I want to speak those lines, but I also want to do the tap dancing number. I want it all. Well, it doesn't work that way. Sorry, you get the role that you get. And uh, in the church, your role in the congregation has specific lines, for lack of a better term, associated with it. You have a part to play, and there's a back and forth between you and me in the liturgy, and then all of us together. You know, when I'm facing you, I'm talking to you. When I'm facing the other way, it's all of us together, and me right here like the priest saying, Lord, listen to these people. They're talking to you right now. Listen to them because you said you were going to do that. Okay? Um, now, here's where we're going to begin then today. Faith is living. And this is what people argue, this is the point that they argue against the idea of faith being passive, because again, they think that passivity is being a big slug or a big lazy dog that never gets up to catch the ball. Uh, and it isn't. Passivity just means something else is happening to you, like a child. You don't see the child changing their own diapers or cleaning up their own messes or feeding themselves. There is a certain degree of dependency, and that it's, dependency is passivity. So then that faith is living means that faith is passive in that it receives, but it is also active in that it works. And I'm, I've been excited for a month and a half to talk about this one because we get to talk all about 
works. And I love talking about works because it makes Lutherans uncomfortable. <laughs> and I'm in the business of making folks uncomfortable. Um, so faith can't ever be static. Faith can't be that stagnant resting pool. It's, it's not enough just to say, well, I have an intellectual capability to accept specific points of data, and because I reasonably have uh, done my work and have reasonably concluded that the data presented to me is factual, I will believe that data in an intellectual capacity. But I'm not going to do anything else. I've done my part. That's what faith is. I'm going to say, yes, Jesus was a real person. I think that's good enough for me. You know, it, it, it isn't just that you say, well, I'm free now. Jesus set me free. Now I can do whatever I want. Nothing matters now because I'm saved. Or the, this, this idea of uh, once saved, always saved. I, I know that you've heard of that. It isn't something that historically the church as a whole, I'm not even talking about the Lutheran church, I'm talking about the Christian church throughout all time in history from the first century on. Not ever something the church believed. Once saved, always saved. The church always has acknowledged that there is an inherent risk, that there is a possibility that someone can decide, I don't want this anymore, and that they can leave. Now they don't forsake, or I'll say it this way, the baptism that they received, if any, is still a valid baptism, but they have forsaken their baptism. The baptism didn't forsake you. The Lord didn't forsake you, but you have forsaken him. And of course, then God becomes for you the hound of heaven. Uh, as the, that poet writes, the, the God that chases you down like a hunting hound, chases down his beloved. Uh, the Romeo who sits outside your window day in and day out, throwing rocks and sending you little love letters and singing you songs, and uh, you just keep slamming the window shut on him. Go away, I don't want you anymore. You know, that's, um, that's that. So it's, it can never be static. There, there has to be motion. I, I talk about this a lot. To, to have faith and to say amen to Jesus, to follow Jesus where he goes, to agree, is motion. Jesus is the way, and Christians are disciples of the way. If you're on a road, you're not just standing there on the pavement going, boy, you know, I really like the look of this pavement. I'm so glad I'm standing out here in the heat of the day. It's really comfortable and nice, and I can't think of any other reason for this road to be here other than for me to stand in one place on it. And of course, if you're in Kansas City traffic and you try to stay in one place, you're going to hear about it from everybody else. <laughs> uh, there, there is an understanding, and there has to be an understanding, that faith is motion. It's never in one place. It's always from one place and continuing on, which means then that there is action. And faith has to manifest itself. Um, this is not a command, in a sense, when I say it has to. It's not me saying, now you have faith, so you better make sure your faith does this, it's me saying faith has to because it can't do anything else. It's a natural requirement of faith that works spring forth from it. Acts of piety and devotion. Why do you cross yourself? Well, it's an act of piety. Why do you reverence the altar before you walk into the chancel? Well, it's an act of piety. And many, you'll see me during the Nicene Creed 
bowed during he descended, or he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. And there is actually a rubric that goes beyond that to where you would do something called genuflecting, where at that you would get down on a knee and make the sign of your cross and bow your head like that. Uh, as a confession of the reality that Jesus came down from heaven and became man and is also right with you right there. The, the thing though is, if you're gonna bow and cross yourself, you have to be up quick because you can't be bowing at the words Pontius Pilate. Yeah, see? <laughs> and you're laughing and it is kind of funny, but that's actually, that's the early church rule. They said, now that's a good thing to pay honor to Jesus, but listen up, folks, you know. Pontius Pilate was a bad man, and you better not be bowing when you say the name Pontius Pilate, because that's giving honor somewhere where it doesn't belong. Okay? But why, do you, what, you know, why would you do something like that? What's well, an act of piety. Do you really believe the things that you believe? Sure. If I try to give you a host when I'm distributing communion and you drop it, or I misjudge the distance and I accidentally drop it, am I just going to pick it up and go, well, no, no, nothing matters here, I'll just, here you go. Or am I going to just throw it in the garbage can? Well, absolutely not. You'll, I'll get down on my hands and knees and I'll eat it up right there in front of you. You, you. you behave a certain way. You do specific things because you have a faith that confesses or that believes in a reality and then naturally confesses what the reality is. All of your acts of piety are acts that are performed because you have faith that believes. All of that is... Every, like, it, during the liturgy, every, you know, every, you might not notice, but I, I even walk differently. I walk down the hall, and then we get into church, and it's, every step is, it's like marching band. Did you ever, or I, maybe how you learn to walk in the military, where you, your, your weight is shifted differently. You know, like if you watch the, um, the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier, and, you know, and they walk, and they click their heels, and every turn, you know, that was pretty sloppy, sorry, Larry. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, everything is, everything is like this, every turn. It's very, that's the way that they do it because they are confessing a reality too. So the deeds that you perform stem from a faith of sorts, even in the secular world, but most especially in the, the world of the sacred. When you're talking about the faith that you have received from Christ, uh, and the faith that is Christ, that, that works on you, that does things to you, that saves you, that gives you the forgiveness of sins, gives you life. Every act that stems forth from your faith is an act of confession about that reality. It has to act because it can't do anything else. If, if you really believe the things that you believe, you just have to behave a certain way. If you really believe that the altar is a sacred space, do you run up and dance around on it and climb on it and treat it with disrespect? Well, no, of course not. And it's a laughable thing even to, for me to bring up because you just know that that is a sacred space and that means that you treat it differently. That's what I mean when I say faith has to act. It has to act not because it's a requirement but because it's a natural outpouring of the belief that is inherent in faith. Okay? Does that all make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, so let's talk about this. Oh, by the way, when I say that it has to act, I also mean act in the sense of good works toward the neighbor. Because faith has to love. If faith loves the Lord, 
then faith will also love who? Mm -hmm. Right, and that's the thing. So then he's saying, now if you have true faith, friends, my dear children, if you have faith, you will love God, and if you love God, you will love your neighbor. And then, like Bill just said, you, like that lawyer, say, well, but who's my neighbor, right? And you can see it, he, it you can almost see it in, in, in the text, because it says, and he, or excuse me, it says, but he, but he, wishing to justify, oh, well, <laughs> okay, but, who, but who's my neighbor? I mean, I've got, a, I've got a couple neighbors, and, you know, we grill out every now and then, and, you know, I'll mow his lawn, and when it gets snowy, I, I blow his walk all the way down, and, you know, then he doesn't have to worry about it, and, you know, I've got this old neighbor across the street, and he can't see real well, so I go over and I help him, I, uh, I do this stuff, so, uh, so that's probably good enough then, right? I mean, I love my neighbor, and the, the thing is, though, if you have to attempt to justify yourself or ask the question, who is my neighbor, you ain't loving your neighbor. Your neighbor is everyone. It, this is the cool thing about the, the parable from last week, uh, the, uh, the Good Samaritan. It's easy, to look at, it's easy to look at parables in general, especially ones that you know, but specifically when it comes to the Good Samaritan, because that is so well known. It's easy to look at those and think, that, think, it, think of it only one way. Oh, there's a, there a man who was really nice to that person. I should be a good Samaritan. I should do this good thing. And, and you know, some random hero goes and dives into a, a flooded lake and saves a dog. And what do they call him? Oh, just you know, some good Samaritan came by. Uh, as if it's just something random. Well, every now and then you run into a real good egg, one of those good Samaritans. Oh, I wish we had more of those. <laughs> but the thing is, everybody should be like that. The point of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus makes this when he, when he says to the, the man, hey, which, which one of these was the neighbor? Well, that guy was the neighbor. Who is my neighbor? It doesn't matter who your neighbor is. The point is that you are to be a neighbor. You know, love your neighbor. Okay, great. Uh, but, but be a neighbor. Live as a neighbor. Which means that everybody who is in need, you're going to be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor to them. Oh my. Yes, be a good neighbor, child. <laughs> Charity goes a long way. Um, so, you know, there really isn't, like I said in my sermon last week, there's no justification for a lack of charity. You know, when, when the Lord stands before at the throne and you are brought before him and he says, well, why didn't you do this, 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 or this? You don't have the option of saying what the priest and the Levite want to say. Well, we, we couldn't, or, you know, we, we walked around, or the law just said that we're not, we don't have to do any harm, but it didn't say anything. We kept the law. Like, well, that's not the point. You weren't a neighbor. And, and it's inexcusable. Whatever you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. You know, and also live, uh, was from Luke, um, do 
do unto others as you, or treat others as you wish that they would treat you. Which means they're not going to tr all treat you that way. They're not going to all behave the way that you want them to, but you're going to treat them the way that you would want them to treat you. They're going to let you down, but you're going to do your darndest not to let them down. See? Uh, loving is a, having a faith that lives and is active and that loves the way it's supposed to is a really hard thing. The more, the more that you sit and listen to me, the more I hope you're understanding that being a Christian doesn't mean your life is going to be easier. <laughs> life is super easy if you're not a Christian because you can do whatever you want. You don't have to care about anybody. There's nothing to do. It's super easy not to be a Christian, but it's hard to be a Christian because now there's a war within yourself because you, like St. Paul, know the good that you should do and then you don't do it and then you go, oh, why am I not doing it? I know what I want to do and then I try to do it and I just don't do it and, and, then, and then it's this constant struggle between, well, well, your neighbor really screwed you over, didn't he? You could really harm him today, couldn't you? No, no, no. You know, like the cartoon, devils and angels, and don't do that. Oh, do it, do it, do it. And that's your life fighting the self and trying to live the new life that is in Christ. Mindy. I was just going to say, I flipped open the Bible, and in Matthew, the golden rule is actually followed by the verse that says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Yes, the gate is narrow, the way is hard, because the way of the cross is just that, <laughs> the way of the cross, the way of self-sacrifice and suffering in a world that is full of it. Uh, it, is, it is very difficult. The, the way is full of brambles and thorns and predators. The, lion, or the, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, it's not just a picture of what the devil is like. It's also a picture of what you are and where you are. You know, the language of, a, of the devil being a predator is important because you are, you are in territory. Lions don't just come anywhere. Well, I was, uh, went out to Branson for vacation and, well, you wouldn't believe it. There's a whole bunch of lions that just followed me there. I don't know how they got there. No, they, don't just go, they don't just go anywhere. They've got territory. And when you are walking the way narrow as it is, with your machete fighting through the brambles. The lions are in the outskirts and they're prowling, hunting you down. Bill. It's not all that simple and easy. Example. Mm -hmm. Or for me. Mm -hmm. I do my, my charitable donations in December. Every single week, I get a reminder from those people to send them something. Do it once a year. And so then I have this, oh boy, you know, should I do this? But even more than that particular thing is, there's one very popular one out there called the Wounded Warrior Project. And for some reason or other, lots of charitable people have taken over what should be the role of the government in looking after people who have been injured in the service, and that, and most of them they are, but there's this Wounded Warrior Project and they, they do things. So about two years ago, uh, I, made a, I made a donation to Wounded Warrior. 
Wounded Warriors as, a, as an organization sold their donation list to about a half a dozen other organizations that do charitable things for veterans and, and so on like that. So now I get a, a reminder every month from uh, the Disabled American Veterans, uh, the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the, uh, uh, the Wounded Warriors, the, uh, I don't, it goes on and on and on. I, I, I'm not hard-hearted, I made that donation, but every time I open that up, I get this guilt trip, you know, so. Defend me there. <laughs> Defend you, okay. How is this for defense? You are absolved of any guilt, and you have pastoral dispensation not to give to charities that you wish not to give to. Choosing not to give to a charity doesn't make you a bad Christian. Choosing not to be charitable makes you a bad Christian. Uh, being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to look at every single piece of mail that you get and give everybody every organization that asks for money, money. That isn't what it means to be charitable. That's part of, charity is part of being charitable. And if you are, you know, you have the places where you give your funds, well, there's some charity there. This is the biggest encouragement I have. If you want to live like the church, then focus your efforts uh, beginning at the nucleus and going out. So where do you, where do you focus your, your efforts first then? And this is, I'm not talking about tithes. This is like your alms and your, and your charitable giving. Where do you start? In your community. You start in your community. What, what needs are there in my community? What can I do to help? Uh, right, hey, there's a really good option right across the street for you. Um, there are things that happen in this community and people that are in need, even in our very small community. Then you go out. Well, what's there? What's there? What's here? What's, uh, what's statewide? What's countrywide? What's worldwide? You go out, but I, I always would encourage you to begin your charitable efforts in the local sphere and work out from the local sphere. The community where you live and in which you are engaged is a community, I mean, that's a part of your life. Uh, like the church here, yes, we, we have mission funds and we give to help support people, but we're also very involved, or ought to be, in our local community here because there are people here that, that need things. There are people here that are uh, in dire straits and need aid of all different kinds, which is why you see me out in a collar putting food in people's trunks. Because the church is called to do that, live in your community, be a neighbor to the people that you're with and a neighbor to the people that are remote. But, but I would say in that order. You know, there's kind of a hierarchy of where your charitable giving goes. But yeah, there is no guilt. Bill and everybody, this is a really, really, really important thing for you to remember. Never forget this. There can't be any guilt where there isn't any sin. Nobody can guilt you into doing something if you haven't committed sin. Sin is what causes guilt, but you can't be manipulated into having guilt where there is no sin. No sin, no guilt. Okay. In the context of what you said about loving your neighbor, mm -hmm. so, it's very rare time that I even watch the news. 
piece where they had a park where the Christians were coming to pray for us at large. Mm -hmm. Next door to that was a full, and they were told not to go there. Kicked out. Next door to them was the staging area for one of the most vicious riots there ever was in that area. So as we're praying for our people, it's hard for me to understand. I want to pray for the Christians that were subdued. It's very difficult for me to pray for those other dudes that are out there killing people. It is. And that's the problem here in this particular context. How do you pray in those entities? Well, you pray for... Peace. You pray for repentance. You pray for the word of God to work upon the hearts. Listen here. You don't, I mean, you don't say, well, gee, Lord, I know I disagree with what they're doing, but, you know, at least keep them safe while they're doing it. I, I think that's probably not a good prayer. You pray for truth, for the preservation of truth. You pray for justice. You pray for the punishment of wickedness. Wherever wickedness is to be found, that it may be punished and subdued. You pray for, here's the kicker, your governing authorities. And I know it's hard sometimes. <laughs> Believe you me. Um, but you pray for your governing authorities, and that's another way that you pray for those people. Because your governing authorities have specific jobs to do as well. Um, you know, Luther calls the, the secular authorities the, the kingdom of the sword. Um, justice. And justice doesn't mean always punishment which is why you pray for the vindication of the righteous. You pray for the defense of the innocent and the punishment of wickedness. You pray for your <clears throat> secular authorities to govern and rule with wisdom. You pray for the motivations of your governing authorities, that they might be motivated by and toward peace, prosperity, charity, unity. All of this stuff, I, all of that is it, and that's just scratching the surface, Larry, to be perfectly honest with you. That's even just scratching the surface about how you pray for those people. And when I look at the Israelites, they got, I mean, generation after generation after generation, they're saying, I'm not just going to get rid of these guys and make our life a little simpler. And sure as hell, if you wait long enough, it will happen. Yeah. You know, they left. Nero was killed and a lot of things, but it's tough. Uh, you're waiting two or three generations for something to occur, and the patience is limited by you. Right. Well, as with many things, Jesus provides a good example, a good icon of Christian living, even as nails are being driven into his hands and feet, and as he's being raised up upon a cross, what is his prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
That's the prayer of the Christian. The, the Christian church, even as it is being dipped in pitch and lit on fire to illuminate gladiatorial combat, even as they are sitting on the hot sand and a trapdoor opens for wild, starving beasts to come in and devour them, they pray, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Be with them, guide them, and lead them that they would repent of this. This is, you know, this is, we're going to go back a category here because this is part of what it means for faith to agree, for faith to say amen to Christ, for faith to follow him. It means aligning your will with the will of God. And you know from Ezekiel that the will of God is that the sinner would turn from his wicked ways and live. The Lord desires not the death of the sinner. The Lord doesn't want to hear your prayers that you say, well, I hope you damn them to hell, those dirty sinners. I'm sick and tired of seeing them on the news like that. And you know what? I've decided they're unrepentant. So withhold forgiveness, Lord, and send them to hell. If that's what your prayer is, then you aren't a neighbor and... You are not a Christian because your will is nowhere near what the will of God is. There is no love in you. There is no forgiveness in you. There is no charity in you at all. So you pray even to the day that you die at the hands of your enemies, forgive them. And you also pray for yourself for the strength to be able to pray that. <laughs> Well, it's as, it's, it's as easy as this. Lord, give me strength to pray for my enemies. And of course, you know, you pray for the people that you hate, and one of the things is going to give. It is going to be either A, your hatred, or B, your prayers. But you can't have both. You can't pray and hate at the same time. One of them is going to go, and prayer is a lot stronger than hate, so you pray for your enemies, they won't be your enemies. And you know what? You follow Jesus. Jesus didn't have any enemies, so you don't get to have any either. And that's a, actually a nice thing. People might think that you're their enemy, and they might try to make you an enemy or make themselves enemies to you, but you're not allowed to have enemies. So anything that they throw at you, you just say, okay, well, I'm still going to be a neighbor to you. I'm still going to love you and care for you. And, and, and every evil that you throw to me, I will continue to repay with good uh, because... I'll behave like the Lord. And he doesn't desire that you would die. He wants you to live. And even as you're crucifying me, I will continue to pray that you would receive the word and repent and turn away from sin and walk the way with me. And you know what? Prayer and the Christian life does work wonders. The, the message of the gospel does work wonders. That Philippian jailer he followed Paul. There's a lot of Christians who knew the consequences in the early church, especially. They knew the consequences of what it would mean for them to be Christians, and they became Christians. One of my favorite stories is the, the account of the martyrdom of saints Felicity and Perpetua. And I think it was Perpetua that was the daughter of a wealthy Roman senator. Ooh, big-time politician. His daughter came out as a Christian and was arrested and thrown in prison and was sentenced to be fed to the beasts. Big-time Senator Daddy comes to the cell and tries to work Senator Magic to get her out and says, just say that you aren't a Christian and I can get it to where you don't have to... Uh, to where you don't have to be in here and you can live. And she says, hey, do you see this water pitcher over here? 
What would you call that? And he said, a water pitcher. And she says, can you call it anything other than what it is? Can you, would you call it anything other than a water pitcher? And he says, no. I can't call it anything other than that because that's what it is. And she says, well, so too, I, I can't be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. And Senator Daddy walks out and never sees his daughter again, and she's fed to the beasts. Now, Senator, Senator's daughter knows what the consequences are and still understands that the worth of the gospel is much greater than any goods and even your own bodily life. Right? Because if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. What is death to you? Who cares? You're all going to die someday, I'll, and I'll preach your funeral. We'll put you into the ground. It'll be a real nice service, very reverent. You can count on that. We'll sing some good hymns, and, uh, and then you know we'll eat some ham and cheese sandwiches. We'll tell some jokes. We'll talk about what a funny person you were, and, and then we'll go home. And it'll be sad, because we'll miss you. But we know you already died once. You're not going to die a second time. Oh. The body's sleeping in the ground. The world will laugh. They laughed at Jesus when he said that Jairus' daughter was just sleeping, but that's okay. I mean, since when did you really care what the world thought of you? It's been a long time since you really cared. So there are things that matter more than your earthly life and your earthly goods and possessions. Oh. What do they matter? You're not taking them with you. You're not Pharaoh. They're not going to bury you with all your stuff and all your cats. Thank the Lord. <laughs> She's gone, so it's okay for me to say that. But I, I looked at 35 years of my life and thought how to eliminate a problem. Uh -huh. I think that. Even though during that time I have fought it. Well, you can, you can still look at eliminating a problem, but the problem that you're going to eliminate is your tendency to try to eliminate the other problem. <laughs> Just eliminate yourself of that. That's the new problem. The, the real question is, what is the problem? How do you define what the problem is? Is the problem what you think it is, or is the problem how you're thinking of things? And if, that, if it is how you're thinking of things, and let's be real, you know, pastors know things, and I'm going to tell you probably universally the problem is how you think of things. So when that is the case, you identify the problem to solve, which is looking at the plank that's in your own eye and saying, Lord, forgive me my sins. Grant me strength to bear your cross, to follow you. Align my will with yours that I might model you in thought, word, and deed, that I may do all things to your glory, uh, the glory of your holy name. Uh, and grant me patience. That's the big one. Confession time. My prayer is grant me patience, Lord, because these days I have not a lot of it. <laughs> I intentionally don't watch the news because I find that I have a lot less patience when I watch the news than I otherwise would. <laughs> All right? So, yeah. It, nobody's, nobody said it's going to be easy. Nobody said it's going to be easy. Christian life is hard. And it's hard for many reasons. It's hard because everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you think is contrary to everything else that the world is telling you. Everything's contrary. You're living a life that is contrary. Hey, listen, your whole life is swimming upstream. 
And the whole time that you're trying to swim upstream, all those other salmon are coming downstream and they're smacking you and busting you up, telling you you're going the wrong way. And here you are. No, no, I uh, think I know what I'm doing. Yes. Good morning, sir. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'll come to talk to you after, after we're done here in Bible class. You know, you know where my office is? You remember where it is around the corner? I'll meet you in there in about two minutes. Okay? Yeah. Uh, okay. Faith has to be active. Faith has to live. Faith has to pray. This is part of what being active faith is. Praying not only for things that you want, not only praying for yourself, not only praying for what's going to benefit you, or even what's going to benefit the people that are close to you, not only praying when things are good, but also praying when things are bad, praying for your enemies, for your persecutors, for all of the people that hate you. And it's, it's very difficult. The spiritual discipline is called discipline for a reason. Not all discipline is comfortable. Not all discipline is fun. But it is necessary. So you get into the habit, Christian piety, living your faith. You know, it, again, you, if all that you're going to do is to say, well, I believe this thing, then you don't actually believe it because all it is is head knowledge. It's like saying, I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, it's enough for you to say that. You're in school and they say, what does 2 plus 2 equal? And you say, well, it equals 4. And they say, well done. That's all you need to know. But it isn't that way in the church and it isn't that way in the Christian life. It's not enough just to say, well, I believe in Jesus. And if you tell me, well, you, I believe in Jesus, that's enough, right? And I say, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? 
Is it head knowledge or is it something else? Because if you really believe in Jesus, you have to follow Jesus where he goes. You have to live like Jesus. You have to talk like Jesus. You have to look like Jesus in everything that you say and in everything that you do, which is also then why you pray for everyone that hates you. And of course, like I said before, you pray for the people that hate you and pretty soon, if you keep praying, you won't hate them anymore. You can't, you can't hate some of the that you're praying for. Okay, questions? We'll continue this next week because I have all this stuff planned about how we're going to talk about works. Okay, so we'll see you at the high altar.